Hear the word of God from Paul's second letter to the churches in Corinth, starting with chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. How's it going today? Everybody doing well? It's a little quieter this morning. Let's try it again. Good morning, church. Got more, a little more excitement that way. All right. It's good to be here. It's not cold. It feels great in here. No? Is that just me? It's, it feels great outside. Beautiful weather. Beautiful fall weather, right? I like it like even five degrees colder. That's just me. All right. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together as our family for our time of sacred assembly. And I call it our time of sacred assembly because that's what it is. I think sometimes we've lost in our modern day expression of church and of gathering during this time of worship, we've kind of lost some of the sacredness of it. Now let me tell you what doesn't make it sacred. It doesn't make it sacred because we're in a, a cool building. What doesn't make it sacred is that people dress up a little nicer. What doesn't make it sacred is that there's a, a pastor here saying a few words over the scriptures. What does make it sacred is that we intend, intentionally come together as a body of Christ to worship and to gather and to worship together the one, only, true, holy, and righteous God. And his word promised to us is that when we gather together, not only is he there, but our prayers are like sweet incense before him. He's shown throughout his word that when our people are gathered together, there's an intentionality that comes from corporate worship. And we're known as that our identity together in worship of him. So it's sacred assembly. And I love that. I love that we live in this weird tension. And however you want to express it, it's okay with you, but we get to express this idea of beautiful sacredness, majestic, awe-inspiring sacredness with a mixture of drawing near of welcoming, of acceptance. And usually those two things don't go together. 
right? If there is an awe, a majesty, usually you hold things to such a point where I can't go, go near that. It's like looking at the sun. The sun is glorious and majestic, but you can't really look at it. It's going to burn your eyes, right? Don't look at the sun. It's not good. Or it's like going to see the king or the president or uh, some person you really look up to. Even though you might look up to them, there might be something sacred about that time, something incredible, but you can't feel comfortable in that. There's this weird tension that we get to live in as Christians, that we get to be welcomed in, ushered in, cradled in. At the same time, we're into the sacred. I love it. It's something so powerful. And so we get to come in to sacred assembly together. That's not at all what to do with my sermon is, but just wanted to share that with you guys. We're continuing our series through the second letter to the Corinthians found in the New Testament. And I hope this has been a good series for you so far. Hope you're enjoying it because we're only in chapter three. So we still got a ways to go. So I hope it's been okay. But in all seriousness, I love this epistle written by Paul. One pastor called this Paul's treatise on the spiritual power of weakness. He, he goes on to say, another way to describe this dynamic is to say that when Apostle Paul takes the gospel and it applies it to the topic of power, the use of power, the exercise of power, the gospel inverts all of our kind of common sense notions about what power is and how it's meant to be used. So we've been looking at the kingdom where we look at a gospel where the way up is the way down. Well, the way to true wealth is to give it away. The way to greatness is through servanthood. The way to gain your life is to give it away. And the logic of the gospel is unpacked here in beautiful ways in the book of 2 Corinthians. And in many respects, this book can be more relevant to us in our time, in this moment in history where there's so much division and hostility and uncertainty. And in those times of division, hostility, uncertainty, there's so much more a grasp for power. Now, I'm not talking only about a political, kind of cutthroat way of grasping for power, but I'm also talking more, our grasp for power, for most of us, is more of a grasp for control. When we live in uncertain times, when we live in divisive times, when we live in difficult times, our grasp for power looks more like our grasp for control, because we want to control as much as possible. Yet the gospel gives us a radically different way of living, a way that can transform hearts and can transform the world and has done it before. Today we're going to get to the actual heart of the issue for Apostle Paul, what, what, his very heart of his message. And up until now, Paul has been defending himself against his critics. People have been criticizing his travel plans of all things. People have been attacking him and, and he's been relying on Christ and boasting in his relationship with Jesus. He's been urging the people of the church to restore the person that was attacking him. He's been defending his own legitimacy and authority as an apostle. And in many respects, 2 Corinthians has been kind of like, like listening to a conversation, but only hearing one half of our, like, the conversation. It's like, like, being on, like being in part of a conversation where Gina's on the phone with somebody, and I can only hear her, her side of it. So you don't really know what's going on on the other side, but you know, you can tell what the arguments are about. You know, about hearing what she's saying. Today we're going to hear, understand a little bit more based on what his arguments are that's actually happening in the church of Corinth. And at the heart of disputes, it's not a, a dispute about just rivals. It's not a, a personality or a leadership style issue. It's not even about his credentials or Paul's resume or his ability to speak. At the heart of these disputes with the rivals in the city of Corinth 
was the gospel itself. What was at stake for Paul and why he was so passionate in his communication was what was at stake was the truth of the gospel itself. So get this, Paul wasn't arguing petty arguments. He was fighting for the sake of the gospel. So let's look at the gospel that Paul articulates here and see what his arguments are saying about what the detractors are saying and speak out against him. So in order to do this, we're going to move through three different headings. And here are the headings. Number one, the gospel isn't about doing good enough. Number two, the gospel isn't about being good enough. And number three, the gospel itself is power. So okay, so the gospel one isn't about doing good enough. And here we're looking at verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read that to you again really quickly. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory, now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So here's what Paul, what's happening here. Paul's rivals weren't just trying to undermine Paul as a messenger. His rivals were actually trying to undermine Paul's message itself. <coughs> Sorry. Essentially, it seems like what they were teaching, what they were saying is that it's not enough just to believe that Jesus is your Messiah. That's an important piece. But these false teachers are saying it's not enough just to believe Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. You also have to obey the Mosaic law. You have to also keep God's perfect law. That both of these things were necessary for salvation. And for Paul, he's arguing here that if that is the case, the glory of the old covenant, the glory of the law that was written on stone, if that's something that we must continue to keep in order to be saved, in order to find acceptance with God, then Paul says that completely undermines the power of the gospel itself. It's another message of self-salvation about being and doing good enough. Paul's arguing that if that's the case, then only the righteous, the, the morally strong, the, the law keepers, only the wolf followers, only the Enneagram ones can actually do this. Those that are spiritually superior will ultimately be able to secure full salvation and approval before God. And he's saying if that's the case, that is not good news at all. And what we can't miss here either is that the teaching, this teaching not only did you have to believe in Jesus, but keep the entire Mosaic law, has huge ethnic overtones in Paul's time. That if you were a Gentile, if you were from Greek, Roman, or African background, to be told that you have to keep the fullness of God's law, essentially, before you became a Christian, was basically saying you have to give up your nationality, give up your identity, become Jewish, then you can become Christian. And so this teaching had these overtones of both a sense of moral self-righteousness, but also a kind of ethnic superiority. And for the Apostle Paul, what he's saying is, Look, religion at the end of the day, if it's religion by works, if it's another form of grasping power because of the deeds that you do, it's a form of self-salvation. And that's what the gospel is not. Paul says this by alluding to Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, the children of Israel have been liberated from oppression in Egypt. They're moving towards Mount Sinai. Moses did the whole water thing, and they're, they're safe now. The Israelites, the, the Pharisees are gone, and he, they're, they're moving forth, and they're in Mount Sinai. And he went up to get the law of God. And while Moses is gone, you'll remember the Israelites started getting impatient. They were like, well, it's taking so long. You know what's a good idea? Let's build a golden calf. 
Never understood that was a good, why that was a good idea, but hey, that's what happened. They built a golden calf and they started having these festivals and hedonistic worshiping of the golden calf. And Moses comes down and you can imagine Moses' reaction. He says, dude, what's wrong with you? Exact words. That's in Exodus. He says, dude, what's wrong with you guys? And he throws down the tablets and it breaks and it shatters. He sees what the Israelites are doing. He's just, he's like, oh man, this is terrible. How could you do this while we're getting the law of God? Ultimately, Moses goes back up to the mountain and that's where Exodus 34 begins. And by the time he comes back, he comes back with the law of God again. But this time when he comes back down, his face is shining with the glory of God. So much so that they had to put a veil over his face because no one could bear to look at the reflected glory of God that was found in the face of Moses. So that's what Paul is alluding to, this chapter, Exodus 34. And the reason why Paul refers back to this actually, it's it's, it's so illuminating. It, It brings so much depth to what he's saying in 2 Corinthians. Well, essentially what Paul is trying to say is this. On the one hand, God's law is blindingly glorious. That is the very self-disclosure of the almighty creator God himself. It's God not just revealing a moral law, but him revealing his own character, who he is. It was God actually revealing the very moral principles upon which the entire universe was built. That when God created the universe, the kind of universe he created was a moral and good and just universe. A universe that was built on these laws that he's beginning to reveal here. And so it's God saying, this is what it looks like. This is how human life will flourish. And this is a universe that I have created. It was an astounding revelation, but this glorious law is also deadly. He said that the law, not in spite of its perfection, but precisely because of its perfection, in the end, condemns us. And yet Paul's essentially saying this. He's saying the law does two things at the exact same time. On the one hand, the law of God shows us just how things were meant to be. This is who we were meant to be. Yet even though it reveals exactly how things were meant to be, who we were meant to be, at the same exact moment, it shows us everything that we are not. And a huge chasm opens up right at our feet. And the gap between who we were meant to be and who we are today begins to look like an insurmountable distance. So it's actually brilliant that the Apostle Paul here, it goes back to Exodus 34. Here's this moment when the perfect law of God was given. And yet, what is Israelites doing? They're busy worshiping a golden calf to even receive the revelation of God of himself. So fitting to show that a perfect law given to fallen people ultimately in and of itself can never save us. All that it can do is express your need to show you what you're not, how we're lacking. To hear this, this is what a perfect law given to fallen people does. It can never save us. All it does is it expresses your need. But we try hard to make it that we don't have a need, right? We feel in our hearts that if we say, and we say to ourselves, we say, if I could just accomplish then, then I'll know I'll, this, then I'll know I'll be okay. If I could achieve this, then maybe I can earn some sort of status in my own mind. Maybe if I do this thing and do it this way, maybe I'll be acceptable as a person. Maybe I can prove that I'm a person of worth compared to Billy or Susie. And what Paul would say to you and me and all of us is that any approach to ultimate redemption based on your works will ultimately condemn you. In the end, there has to be another way. 
And so Paul says the gospel must reside far over any form of good works or self-salvation. Salvation is through Jesus and anything else, that anything else will just poison the truth of the gospel. So the gospel couldn't be any more different from religion that people may practice. It's not good advice to tell you what you must do to achieve God's love. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in order for you to receive his forgiveness, in order for you to know his love. And that's the first point, that the gospel is bigger than any program of self-salvation or doing good works. Doing good works ultimately leads to condemnation, insecurity, anxiety, and ultimately grasping after power to prove that I'm okay. But the gospel isn't about doing good enough. Number two, the gospel isn't about being good enough. If you look, turn to verses 12 through 15, it says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds remain dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. What is Paul talking about here? I mean, there's two different types of veils that are being mentioned. One covering his face, but another one covering hearts. What does that mean? And the best way to understand these verses is actually to be thinking of Paul speaking out of his own experience. Remember, this is a letter written by a guy named Paul. Okay, so just go back to that. Uh, this epistle is not a textbook. It's not an encyclopedia. It's, not, it's actually a letter written by a guy named Paul to the people in Corinth, people he knew, who also knew him. So if you know a little bit about Paul's biography, he considers himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's trained as a Pharisee. He was zealous for the tradition of his ancestors and his people. Those are his words, by the way. I'm not saying, he, I'm just saying, I would describe him in such a way too. And what Paul was saying is that for so long there was a veil over his own heart that prevented him from seeing the beauty of what God has done in Christ Jesus. There, were, there was a veil blinding him. There were scales that had to fall off his eyes. When Jesus had come to, come to him, blinding him in a vision and literally knocking him down from his own righteousness in order for him to see that there were good news in Jesus. And that's what happened on Paul's experience on his road to Damascus. It was earth-shattering. He literally had to be knocking down, blinding his vision so that his true spiritual blindness could be revealed to him. That's what he discovered. That everything he had ever done, all the good things that he thought drove him closer to God, turned out to be the very things that were keeping him from God. That it was actually his perceived goodness that was blocking his way to receiving the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That he was using his goodness as proof of why he didn't need a savior like Jesus. That he doesn't need a, a humiliated savior, a crucified savior. It was his truth, it was goodness that kept him from the truth. How true this can be for so many of us and so many others. The very thing that you are holding on to for your standing is the very thing keeping you drowning. The very thing that you're holding on to, well, at least I'm not as bad as my relatives. At least I'm not as bad as all those other people. At least I do, I am, I'm pretty good. I'm kind of not selfish at times. I kind of give away money. I do nice things. I don't hate everybody, just some people, you know? Or I, I don't lie to everyone, just some people, 
So that makes me pretty good. The very thing that you hold on to for your identity and your righteousness is the very thing holding you down. It's like, it's like being on a sinking ship and a rescue boat is offered to you. You, you can talk how, about how hard you worked on this boat you're on. You can say how sturdy it is, how much better it may be built than all the other ships around you. How beautiful and how glorious it looks to you. So you can say thanks, but no thanks. Of course you don't need rescue. But the whole time you don't know that you're on a sinking ship and it's going deeper and deeper into the ocean. The very thing you're clinging to for hope is keeping you from receiving salvation. Please hear me. Your boat may be your good deeds or your ability to be a good person or your identity and thinking that you are. Hear me very well. That very lie that you tell yourself at night to make yourself sleep better, that very sentiment that thinks, well, at least I'm not that bad. It's the very thing keeping you from the one thing you need. You're clinging to a sinking ship and it's holding you back. It's keeping you from who you really are and what you really need. The gospel says that we need to be both saved from our selfish and destructive desires and deeds every bit as much as we need to be saved from our good and charitable deeds. And that means that the only way to be saved is not by anything we do, not because we're worthy, not because we've achieved, not because we've earned it, but the only way to receive the approval and the validation of God that our hearts are seeking is by grace through faith alone. We're not worthy of it. And so rich or poor, success in the eyes of the world or failure, morally upright and decent or morally degenerative, no matter how you might see the world, when we admit there's nothing we can do to earn the love of God, now suddenly everybody stands as equals before the face of God. And to admit that I'm utterly lost apart from grace, to admit that I'm a sinner saved by grace alone, do you see what that does? To admit that and to be met back with unconditional love, do you see what that does? It opens up this way to this paradox that we've been discovering that the way to truth and confidence is not through your own strength, it's through your weakness. And therefore to use our power in a way that's consistent with this gospel is through weakness. Not trying to gain approval for ourselves, but giving it away because we've received everything we've needed in Jesus. See what that does. That it frees you from the anxiety and the worry that am I good enough? Have I done enough? Will I be good enough? Will I do good enough? And instead, you receive unconditional love. The gospel is not about doing good enough. It's not about being good enough. Do you get that? That's what Paul's arguing here. He's saying the veil was placed over these hearts. The hearts couldn't receive. They couldn't see because this law was placed upon them and they felt they had to, they had to live up to it. They had to give up to it. But the law was placed there to say that they would see their need for God. Not their need to work harder or be better, but their need for who the Messiah is. See, finally, the gospel itself is power. If you look at verses 16 through 18, we ask the question of how is the veil removed? This veil over our hearts that keeps us from the good news of Jesus, like Paul was talking about, that he had to be knocked down to receive. How do we skip the performance towards our salvation? And the answer is in verse 16, and it's so simple. If you look at verse 16, what does it say? It says this, and I'll put it on the screen. Verse 16. 
But whenever, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Seems a little simplistic, right? <laughs> what? What's he saying? That the moment that you could turn away from all your efforts, from all your own perceived goodness, all your achievements, the moment you could turn away from all the things that you're piling up to prove to somebody, anybody, that you're worthy, the moment you could turn away from that and turn to the God who made you, to the God who laid down his life to redeem you, to the God who calls you and says, come to me in faith, the moment you could turn away from all those strivings and simply turn in repentance to the God of the Bible, the veil is lifted. The veil is lifted. You are set free, and that is power. Power over the voices in your head that try to tell you that you are not known, that you're not loved, and that you're not accepted. Power to live a life of love and freedom. Power to be the person that God has created you to be. There is nothing more powerful than that. This power is given to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Verses 17 through 18, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. We now with unveiled faces by the power of the spirit are being transformed with ever-increasing glory. Hallelujah, amen. What power. What amazing love that we get to be now lifted away from the veil, this veil of condemnation that says, hey, you're going to live this way, look this way, act this way, be this way. And we have this barrier, that we, this, this kind of marker. We don't know how to get there. We're like, okay, is it this high? Is it this high? We don't know. But we kind of try, maybe hope we're there. Or we compare to Billy or Susan or whoever. And we say, okay, maybe I'm there, but some days I'm not. Some days I am. Yay. Or, oh, then no. And we live in this depression because one day we're like, I'm there. And another day I'm like, I'm not there. That we live in guilt and we struggle. We live in anxiety and fear because we don't know where we stand. But the gospel says it's not where you stand. It's not in comparison to anybody else. It's not the good deeds you do. It's not how good you think you are. But it's freedom that comes from knowing that the law was meant to be given to you. It's just the limited glory, transitory glory. That's one is going to be full glory revealed to show you that Jesus is the way to know truthfully and forever that you are known and you are loved, you are accepted, and you are called to purpose. And when you walk in that, the Bible says there is freedom. There is freedom from anxiety, from fear, from insecurity. There's freedom. Now, I know some of you are sitting here like, well, I feel all those things you just said. I think I know all that. Let me tell you, you're transitioning to more glory. You're not there all the way yet. But you are, you have received, for those of you who know Jesus in this way, the veil has been removed from your face and from your heart. And as you gaze upon the beauty that is Jesus, as you gaze upon the beauty that is God, you are transitioning to more and more glory. What that really means in my heart, what that, in my mind, that means you're transitioning to learning to become more like him, which means that you're learning to have less fear, less anxiety, as you're becoming more aware of who God is. And one day, while this earth will not fully happen, one day it will fully be accomplished. Amen? Do you know the freedom that is offered in Jesus? 
When you think about Christianity, when you think about relationship with Jesus, when you think about God, do you feel burdened? Do you feel guilt? Do you feel rejection? Do you feel anger? Or when you turn to God, do you feel relief? Do you feel known? Do you feel a love that you can never lose? Because you never earned it in the first place. My people hear this. In order for God to make a moral universe, it cost him nothing. But in order for God to forgive you and embrace you, it cost him everything. And he did it. If you don't know Jesus today, if you don't know what the gospel and the power of the gospel really is, you still think it's built on being good and doing good. If you're still trying to earn your way to hold on to your own power and righteousness, you don't have to anymore. You can be known and you can be loved. You can be accepted today. During our music set, there'll be people with yellow lanyards who would love to talk with you, to pray with you about this. Quit holding on to your sinking ship and receive his love and salvation. And for those of you who do know, you're able to walk in the power of the gospel. You are set free. You get to see him with unveiled hearts, gaze upon him and fall deeper in love. Gaze upon God and fall deeper in love. And as you gaze upon his beauty, you'll start seeing the things of the world. What's that old song? Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is always like, I don't know why that's upon my head. Gaze upon him, and you start seeing the things of the world fall away. Shame and guilt and anxiety. Not because you will them away. Not because you're strong enough to get them away. Because in light of God's infinite care and beauty, those things start to fall away as you're transitioning to more glory. Maybe not fully and forever in this time, but one day it will fully and forever be gone. And that's a promise given to you. Walk in that promise. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise that the gospel is not about making and doing good deeds. And the gospel is not about doing or being a great person. But the gospel is about power and freedom. The gospel is your gift to us that's so good. God, that this relationship this, that you've walked from the very beginning of time, that the, the message of Moses and the stone tablets that you've given us to show us your goodness and your nature and your character and to show us ultimately our need of you. That's the same gospel message today. We have a need of you. God, will you tear down those things that we hold onto that make us think we're acceptable or better or whatever it may be. Instead, we show us that we just need you and you are more than enough for us. And as we gaze upon your beauty, God, as you're changing us and transforming us to more glory, Holy Spirit, will you continue to empower us and set us free in this way? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. coming to the Lord's table together.
We have the privilege and joy of coming to the Lord's table together this morning. And as we do, what a beautiful way to respond to this message of the gospel. That it's not about, the gospel isn't about doing good enough. It isn't about being good enough. But the gospel itself is power. And we come to this table again and again as a church because we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, here's what we are doing. We are preaching the gospel to ourselves. That what I bring to the table doesn't earn me anything. And I'll often say this to y'all. This isn't a magical snack. It doesn't do anything for you. But it does allow us to come back to the cross and remember that Jesus made a way, that his grace is sufficient. I'm going to let this passage from Hebrews guide us as we reflect on the table this morning. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. And with full assurance of faith, that faith brings with having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. As we come to the table this morning, I invite you to preach that to yourself, that he who promised is faithful, and that by his body, which was broken for you, Jesus said when he gathered with his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he said of the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. How we practically do this as a church is we'll have four stations, one for each section, invite you to come and you'll be handed a piece of bread and we'll say to you, this, the body of Christ broken for you. You take that bread and dip it in the cup. We'll say the blood of Christ poured out for you. And as we do this, we're told that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So church, I'm enlisting you. If you are a believer in Jesus, I'm empowering you to preach this morning. Preach that message to yourself. Jesus died for you. He rose to give us life. And we rehearse that coming joy as we come to the table. Invite our servers to come forward. As they do, you can... um, just practically how we do this. You're welcome to, as you receive the elements, to take them right away and kind of reflect as you 
eat those elements, or you can carry them back to your seat. Take a few moments to reflect on the good news of the gospel. There's no magical or formula to this. This is simply an invitation that Jesus gave us as a way for us to remember, to be present in the gospel, and to anticipate that he came for us and he is coming again. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this reminder that we bring nothing to the table. Lord, I'm sure there's some that feel some of that social anxiety. Sometimes I feel at moments like these. When do I stand up? How do I come? All these elements. Lord, we invite, I ask that this body would simply hear this invitation to come. That we bring nothing to the table except hearts that have been forgiven. So we give you thanks as we celebrate this meal together. In Jesus' name, amen. Come as you are led.